When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey everybody, it's Dan. Welcome to our Monday edition of the Orange and Brown Talk podcast. And today we are pretty much wrapping up our position reviews. Uh, we're going to do running backs and tight ends uh, with Scott, Mary Kay, and I. And then we're going to do wide receivers with Ellis, Mary Kay, and I. You might even hear my son's tuba playing in the background a little bit. I'm not sure if that came over the audio, but if you hear a tuba in the background, that's that's what you're hearing. So uh, make sure you check that out. If you missed any of our position reviews, go back to last week. Check out our Orange and Brown Talk feed. And of course, make sure you're signed up for Football Insider. Go to cleveland.com slash browns. Click on the blue banner at the top of the page to get an exclusive newsletter. Every single day, get access to those stories on cleveland.com, exclusive to our subscribers, and also to be a part of our texting group. Okay, here we go. Starting off your week, looking at running backs, tight ends, and wide receivers. And away we go here on our Monday Orange Brown Talk podcast. We are going to start by talking about running backs and tight ends, Mary Kay Cabot and Scott Patsko. Are with me, so let's get to it. Let's start with the running back position. Certainly, a, a position of strength for the Cleveland Browns. And you know, there aren't a ton of questions about this position, but I, I guess the big one is now we kind of get to find out this offseason just how much this front office values the running back position. Do we think that Nick Chubb will be among the, the group of guys that gets paid this offseason? You know, it's a great question. It is a great question, and it's one that I think that this front office we'll have to wrestle with a little bit because once again, it's not necessarily the way things happen in the analytics world to pay uh, running back a ton of money in, in the second, uh, in the second contract in part, just because there starts to be a drop off amongst running backs, especially if they've got a lot of uh, mileage on the tires. And then, um, you know, just from a, from a durability standpoint, you know, it just starts to be a little bit of a thing. So you don't necessarily give them a big, huge, long-term contract but I think the Browns think of of Nick Chubb differently than than maybe some teams would think of just a a regular running back I mean he's he's one of their own he was a high draft pick Uh, he's been sort of the face of the franchise he's meant so much to this team in so many ways he's a fan favorite and I think that uh, you know you can put a premium on some of that Uh, so I think they would have to get creative and try to do some kind of maybe an incentive-laden deal or a shorter term deal, uh, something that you can work out the economics of it so that you're not strapping yourself with a, a, a ton of money for, for down the road when running backs typically aren't producing for you anymore. Yeah, I mean, look, if anybody's gonna give running back money, it, it, you would figure it would be the Browns just because of the way this offense was set up and having Nick Chubb and Kareem Hunt out there together benefited both of them. You know, I think Nick Chubb, what led the league in second half rushing yards, definitely fourth quarter rushing yards. And, uh, you know, they just work together. And I, I don't think it's a question, obviously, of, of whether or not he gets an extension. It's whether or not, I guess it comes down to what they want to pay him and where he falls into the, you know, the hierarchy of running back contracts at this point. Yeah, I mean, I, I always kind of cringe to say like, well, this, this is the guy you've got to pay because it always turns out that, when you say that about a guy two years later, you realize that wasn't the guy that wasn't the running back that, that needed to be paid. These guys do always sort of age out. Um, but that, you know, that said, you know, Chubb is 25 years old and I, and I pulled up a couple other contracts. So Derek Henry, who is 26, he signed through 2023 his age 29 season, but there's a lot of flexibility in those last two years of the contract. Uh, Joe Mixon, who's 24, uh, I believe he's still 20. He signed the, the extension at age 24. He's signed through the, uh, his age 28 season. But again, a lot of flexibility once you get past the first couple years of that deal. And then Dalvin Cook is another one. Um, he signed through his age 30 season. But again, more flexibility in that contract as you, as you move along. So to me, I, I just look at it like if you did a deal with Nick Chubb now, 
you, you know, you'd have that fourth year of his rookie contract. And then, you know, you'd have, you, you're probably still paying for two to three productive years after that. So, and then you can have some flexibility. So I think there's ways they can do this where they can pay Nick Chubb, make everybody happy, Chubb, his teammates, the fans, and still give themselves flexibility if he does have that drop off that, that we do see from a lot of running backs. Yeah, I, I think there's a way to do it. And this is a very creative uh, front office and they know how to work the salary cap. They know how to do creative deals. And I think we can all probably agree that, that they're going to want to keep Nick Chubb for all the reasons we mentioned, including the fact that that makes a great one-two punch. They're not ready to give up on that yet. I mean, there's just no way. So I, I would think that there will be some kind of a, of a creative contract that, that gives Nick Chubb the, uh, you know, the, the insurance that he needs and the, you know, the safety valve that he needs to get a bunch of money over the next couple of years. And yet the Browns have their guy without paying him when he's 30 years old and not able to, to produce the way that you need him to for whatever $15 million a year that some running backs would have in that last year. Although in, in the Browns favor, I guess, and all this, if you're looking at it from a front office standpoint and a, and a coaching standpoint, we know Kevin Stefanski's offense works with one guy getting the bulk of the carries because we saw that in Minnesota. So having two guys who are this good is not, it's not vital to this offense. So you could, you know, if you wanted to talk yourself out of having two guys this caliber in your backfield, you could. But I, I think Mary Kay's right. You don't, uh, you don't give up on this because I think there's, there's more to explore with having both those guys in the backfield. Well, that was, that was the next question I wanted to ask. Cause you know, again, there's so much stability at this position. There's not a ton to really dig into, but Kevin Stefanski did seem to indicate uh, when we talked to him earlier this week that um, there could be more, like you said, Scott, there's more to explore with having both those guys on the field um, at the same time. I think we saw it. I, I vividly remember at least once in Kansas city, we saw it, uh, but I, I know we didn't see it a ton this season, but Maybe that's one of those kind of next progressions of this offense when this coaching staff gets to sit down together and figure out, okay, now what do we do with this offense? We've got it installed. We know it well. So now what's next? And, and maybe that's one of those next steps is let's figure out how to use Nick Chubb and Kareem Hunt together to just, just really cause problems for, the, for opposing defenses. Yeah, I went back and I looked at Andy Janovich's snap count. He had 180 snaps and he was pretty much always out there with someone else in the backfield. So he had 172 of those in the regular season. The Browns had at least two running backs on the field for 176 snaps during the regular season. So Chubb and Hunt were on the field together very rarely. Um, if you want to have them on the field more going forward, you have to weigh that and all the things that could get you against how well it worked having them fresh at the end of the season, you know, but there are, there, there are ways that you could use them like that, uh, that David Njoku screen, the second play against the chiefs. Um, you know, if that's, if that's Chubb and Hunt lined up in the backfield and one of them motions to that spot at tight end spot where Njoku was on that play, I think anybody would much rather have Kareem Hunt or Nick Chubb catching that screen and running than David Njoku and it's still gained 27 yards. But if Nick Chubb has that screen pass in that situation, that, that's probably a touchdown with all that open field in front of him. So there are, there are some ways that that could work, but then you have to commit to having them on the field a lot more than you did this year, because you can't have it be like a, a tell that, you know, they're both out there together. So you're going to try something tricky, like sneaking one out of the backfield for a screen or something. They have to really commit to that. And, and again, you're weighing that freshness against, you know, matchups or, or getting a screen or, or you know, rolling out and getting a matchup out wide, something like that. You know, I, I thought there were so many different times this year where I actually thought that Kareem was underutilized. And one of the times that I thought that was in the Kansas City game. I just felt like, you know, I mean, he was going in there with so much emotion and with so much to play for. And I kept on thinking, what are they waiting for? Like, why aren't they using him earlier in this game, including on that second drive? You know, I mean, you could have used him there, uh, you know, to, for those, you know, those two passes that you threw to Nick Chubb. Uh, I, I just, that was just one of the things that I, I have to wonder when they go over the tape 
uh, for this game if they won't regret not seizing the moment with, with what he was bringing to the table in that game. I think it was the end of the third drive where he finally got a target and that didn't even count because there was a penalty on the play. Yeah. Yeah. I was wondering that too. Like where's, where's Kareem Hunt? <laughs> right. Scott, you brought up a name, Andy Janovich. Uh, let, let's touch on him just quickly. It was the return of the fullback in Cleveland this year. Did it, did it live up to expectations? Not for me. <laughs> I guess I was thinking, you know, at the end of the day, he wasn't too far from the usage, I guess, that CJ Ham had in, in Minnesota. And that's, I mean, Minnesota pretty much that gave us the template. You know, we, we think, okay, well, they got a fullback here. This is how they'll probably use them. They got these tight ends here. They they'll probably use them the way they did in Minnesota. And um, it wasn't like that. I think he was targeted five times in the passing game. He had two carries. And not that you want to keep handing Janovich the ball, but it seemed pretty obvious that when he was on the field, they're going to run it. Whether, uh, and he, obviously he was just, you know, he was going to be the blocker. So that's where I think, you know, you take him out of that equation and you put uh, Kareem Hunt in there. Um, maybe that's, that's a better scenario for the Browns because you have a lot more options on what you can do with the ball. They just, for whatever reason, they did not feel that Janovich was going to be as big a part, which makes sense because he didn't have two guys in the backfield like, like he has here with, uh, with Hunt and Chubb. But we did see, I did see him. We saw a lot of things in training camp that just didn't happen. Like we saw Javon Janowitz on the field a lot in reps. We saw a lot of tight end screens uh, in, in training camp. And that just didn't really translate to the regular season. Maybe they were just trying to fool us. Yeah. And I, I think that this off season, um, you know, they were, they were doing a lot of things on the fly this year, including learning, learning their own personnel and trying to figure out who did what well and when and how. And it, it really wasn't even until the bye week when they sort of figured out, oh, look, here's exactly what we have to do with Baker Mayfield. We got to do more play action. We got to do more keepers. Uh, and I think it was sort of that way with everyone. And I think when they go back and they look at the film, uh, they, they will change some things up with the current personnel that they have. And I think Kareem will be one of those things. I think, as you mentioned, uh, Andy Janovich will be one of those things that they'll look at, um, you know, just the sort of the utilization of Nick and, and Kareem together uh, apart. I just think that, you know, they are going to know so much more about their guys as they go in and pull this thing apart in the offseason and put it all back together. Yeah, the other, the other thing about Janovich, too, I, I was hoping, you know, we'd see a little more of the fullback in the passing game. And we did early in the year, he had two targets, two catches in the first three weeks, but then um, he was targeted three more times and didn't catch a, a single one the rest of the way. So, you know, that fullback in the passing game can sometimes be an asset and it just never really developed. And, and again, part of that is, would you rather have Andy Janovich catching the ball or Kareem Hunt or Nick Chubb, who also got a little more involved in the passing game as, as things went along. One other guy that's, that we should at least give uh, a little attention to, Dearness Johnson, had the big game against Dallas, but then also, more importantly, really kind of established himself as a pretty useful kick returner. Um, so he's, he's probably a guy that sort of earned himself at least another year here with this team. Uh, if nothing else, you know, having a shot to compete returning kicks in camp. So um, we'll give Dearness Johnson a little love here before we move on to tight ends, which we're going to do right now. Um, big question to tight end. You guys know that I've, you know, I've, at times I've been a little hard on our, our buddy, David Njoku. Uh, the Browns picked up his fifth-year option. They stood by him. Uh, even when he was requesting trades and all of that, he was still, they were still right there, refusing to move him, standing by him. And so my question here is, did David Njoku win anybody over this season? Because I do think, you know, he was consistent catching the football. I don't remember a ton of drops from him. I think he caught the first touchdown pass of the season, in fact. Mm -hmm. um, and he really seemed to develop as a blocker. So David Njoku really kind of, I don't, I don't know if saying turned his career around is, is the right way to put it, but I, I think he did some things this year that kind of showed you, okay, this guy could still really turn into something for this football team. Yeah, you know what? I, I think he really did. I think he really did. It was a turbulent year for David Njoku. It began obviously with him asking for a trade and then the Browns basically saying, we're not trading you. Uh, as you mentioned, he does have his fifth year option. 
uh, that he uh, is under contract for that for next year at, at about $6 million a year, which is a nice price for a really good tight end. Uh, I, I think the Browns are, are going to want to keep him at that rate. And it's, it's going to be a matter of can David Njoku, uh, you know, just say to himself and, and his agent, Drew Rosenhaus, can they say to themselves, this is a pretty darn good situation. Now, David wants more than 19 catches for 213 yards and two, days, two TDs. He wants more than that, which is why he continued to want to be traded. But he did an excellent job, as you mentioned, as a blocker. He was fourth in the NFL in pass blocking. He, can, he turned out to be fourth in the NFL in pass blocking, according to Pro Football Focus. In terms of drops, he only had three drops. Now, he didn't have as many targets as he wanted to, uh, but he only dropped three, three passes. Uh, he was 25th overall amongst uh, tight ends, and he had a nice game against the Chiefs. And it, you know what? In, in, when I look and grade a, a season or a player, stepping up in big games means a lot. When you can step up against the Kansas City Chiefs in a game that will determine whether or not you're going on to the AFC Championship game, that counts for something to me. And he stepped, I thought he stepped up and he had a nice game. He caught four or five targets. For 59 yards, as you mentioned earlier, Scott, he had that 27-yarder on the screen. Uh, I just thought he had a nice season. And I think if he can reconcile being here with the role that he has, uh, I, I think that they can move forward and make this work. I think, you know, it, it comes down to did he, did he change his mind about Cleveland, you know, um, after going through this season – is he in a good place? And, you know, it seems the Browns, uh, at least the coaching staff, liked what he was doing because Harrison Bryant didn't get a target in the playoffs. Zero. It was, it was David Njoku. And I know Harrison Bryant had missed, missed the time. But, uh, I mean, still, that's big. Like Mary Kay said, you come up big in the playoff game, that, that counts for something. Um, yeah, I was fine with, 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 the, with uh, how he performed this season. Uh, he, that wasn't the first time that he had made a big catch you know, in the second half of the season. So from that standpoint, uh, it's, it was, it's good that, that they know that he, he's under, under contract for another year. That makes, you know, that makes this unit, I think, a lot stronger going forward. And, you know, if he ends up being the number two guy next season, that would make totally, total, totally fine sense. I, at some point, you have to figure out what to do about the fact that you have three capable tight ends. Um, you know, I doubt Njoku's going to want to re-sign here without there being some clarity on that. <laughs> I don't think he wants to move forward being that number three guy, but it was clear that coming down the stretch here that they counted on him and he came through. Yeah, I, I think some of it really does have to do with that role, right? I, to me, if David Njoku is your number one tight end, I, you know, I think that's a problem. But if, if he's willing to accept a role where he is a number two guy and he does have to do some of the dirty work, and he has to continue to develop that. And, and that's kind of one of the things with this team across the board. I think guys were really willing to kind of do some of the dirty work, um, especially those tight ends. And if, if he's willing to do that, then he can certainly have a future here. But, you know, if he's your number one guy going forward, that, that's a little concerning. Now, Austin Hooper was the number one guy. Uh, they signed him in the offseason, paid him a bunch of money. Now, if we do want to talk about playoff games, there's a chance that had the Browns beaten the chiefs, we'd be talking about that fourth down reception for a long time. That was a huge play uh, and a huge catch by Austin Hooper. Um, when, on, when the Browns went for it on fourth down late against Kansas city, it, it wasn't meant to be. So Hooper's tough this year for me to figure out because it wasn't like consistently down to down. This guy's just a reliable target making catches, but then at the same time, he did become a, a fairly reliable target for Baker Mayfield in the red zone, especially it seemed in the second half of the season. So I guess, where are we at with Austin Hooper? Obviously you, you have to discuss it in the context of the Browns paid him a bunch of money. You know, I don't know. I'm, I'm trying to figure out was his season good. It wasn't bad. Was it just okay? How do we grade out this season? You know what? I, I don't think he had the kind of season that he hoped to have. I don't think he had the kind of season that the Browns hoped that he would have, but I think he, he kind of got caught up in the, uh, a little bit of the Baker Mayfield, not being what he needed to be in the first half of the season. I think it took a while for 
for Baker to, to come around in this offense and for the lights to come on uh, in, in this scheme. And so therefore, I think those two should be better together next year than they were this year. I think they'll probably work out to get together in the offseason again. They're very close in terms of being good friends. So I know it's important to Baker to make this work out really well with Austin Hooper. Um, one of the things that, that he did, and I, again, I think this is a function of him and Baker getting to know each other. He was tied for fourth with five drops. So he had uh, a significant amount of drops uh, that, you know, that you're just not expecting from him. He finished 90th with 46 catches. 90th, okay? Uh, last year, he was 26th with 75. He finished 107th in the NFL with 435 yards, and he caught four touchdown passes. Last year, he had 787 yards, uh, and that was 42nd, and he had six touchdown catches last year. So his production was down significantly from last year when he in his last year with the Falcons when he was a pro bowler. And once again, he made that big catch you're talking about against Kansas City, but for, for whatever reason, weirdly, and it was the offense was disjointed in that game to begin with, but uh, two out of three targets for 16 yards. So when you look at two of your biggest players in that game, your two, your best tight end and your best receiver, Jarvis Landry and Austin Hooper, we're talking about a guy that makes $10.5 million in Austin Hooper and a guy that makes whatever, $14 million. I don't know how much Jarvis makes it somewhere around there. Jarvis Landry with 14 million. They combined for 36 yards receiving 36 yards receiving in the playoff game. Okay. When you go and circle, like some of the things that like just didn't go right for you in that game, those are two of the things that you can point to. Now it's not like Austin Hooper had eight targets like Jarvis did. Jarvis caught seven out of 10 targets for only 20 yards. Austin Hooper only got three and he made the most of the one, obviously, but still Austin Hooper in a game, in a game like that, of that magnitude, you need, look at what Travis Kelsey did in that game. Right. <laughs> right. You need a game like that from Austin Hooper. If you want to win a game like that. I think Austin Hooper falls into the group of Brown's offensive players who were never going to have the kind of season they've had in the past. You know, Odell's in there, Jarvis, Baker, um, Kareem Hunt, because you have so many different options on this offense and there's only one ball. And it just made sense that someone like Austin Hooper was, his production was going to, was going to decline. I think a lot of it had to do with everybody just kind of figuring out this offense as they went, because it clearly got better as the season went on, but they also had to adjust, you know, you lost Odell in there. You had the weird weather trilogy in the middle of the season and, you know, down the stretch, they kind of started to figure things out, but you know, you're also adjusting because defenses know what you're doing, all these things kind of working together. Um, so, I mean, yeah, if you look at the money, uh, you, you come away thinking you didn't get enough production from Austin Hooper that, the kind of production that you thought you would. I mean, last last season, um, actually, I brought up the wrong team. I was looking for uh, for Minnesota here. Last season, Cal uh, Rudolph was the top receiving tight end for the Vikings. Forty five catches on fifty five targets. So that's not too far off from where from where uh, Austin Hooper was. So I mean, it's roughly comparable, but. I don't think he was ever going to have, he wasn't going to have the kind of seasons he's, he's probably never going to have the kind of seasons he had with the Falcons again, not playing in this offense. Yeah. I mean, you always have to balance that, you know, he's getting paid like a top tight end, but look, he's not Travis Kelsey. We knew that he's not George Kittle. You know, we knew that he's not in that class of that very, very top of the tight end group, but he does have the potential to be a good receiving target. Um, for this football team. And, and that's what they needed to do. They needed to, to go out and bring in a, a guy like that to sort of, I guess, calm that position a little bit, because if he wasn't here, your top tight ends were going to be David Njoku, Harrison Bryant, Stephen Carlson. And, and, and you just couldn't go into this season doing that. So Bryant is another guy. I think he came out of that Cincinnati game and it was like, whoa, this guy's unbelievable, right? 
second half of the season kind of took a dip down. Um, struggled with fumbles, uh, had a big one in the Jacksonville game specifically, but had another one during that, that stretch of bad weather games too that really hurt him. And it, it just felt like Bryant dropped off a little bit in, in the second half. So with Bryant, what, are, what do you think is a reasonable expectation for him going into year two? Well, like you said, he kind of dropped off. He had sort of the, you know, the rookie tail off situation. Um, and, and that didn't have, happen for everybody. I mean, Donovan Peoples-Jones got better as the year went on. Um, so, yeah, it was, you know, it was interesting. And his, his season was interrupted uh, by, you know, being placed on the COVID list. And, uh, and that, that sort of jarred everybody that, that had to go on that list. I mean, it just really had an impact on everybody. Um, but yeah, he, he's going to need to, he's going to need to step it up. He, he is going to need to step it up. And when I look at, um, you know, like Austin Hooper too, I think you need more out of him. If you're going to be paying him ten and a half million dollars a year in a, in a, you know, when you have a salary cap structure where you've got to try to pay Baker and Denzel and, and you want to pay Nick and you got to pay all these people, your offensive linemen that a bunch of them are due to make a bunch more money. You know, if you're going to pay a tight end ten and a half million dollars, you you've got to get more out of him than that. And if you don't, then then move him and go with David and, and, and Harrison Bryant. I mean, I thought Bryant did fine as a rookie. I mean, tight ends usually don't hit the ground running as rookies. It takes them a year or two to kind of really figure things out because you do have that dual role of, of blocking more so than, you know, a receiver. Um, plus along with, along with the receiving part of it, the no, the no targets in the playoffs just kind of surprised me. And I know, like, you know, he said he, he was on the COVID list there at the end of the season, but it just, I don't know what to make of that. You know, was that the team thinking that they just, they didn't want to put him in those positions in the playoffs and they'd rather put Njoku in those positions or, or was there something else to it? It just, it was weird. But I think he did it enough this season to, to, to feel confident going into year two, knowing you're going to be in the same offense. I mean, so much about this team, uh, going forward the fact that they have everything in place and you're not changing coaches and schemes and everything is going to help so much and I think he's one of those players that he's coming back in the same scheme and I think he did fine yeah and uh you know I it was interesting to see how they used him a lot he was on the field a lot when they motioned him in as a fullback and and things like that it seemed like they really kind of liked the skill set he brought and, and some of the different ways they could use him especially early in the year so um, not bailing on Harrison Bryant just yet. Uh, it's hard. Tight end is a hard position for a rookie. It really is. So um, sometimes you're just kind of trying to survive. Um, props to Steven Carlson for being able to recover onside kicks. Good for him. <laughs> uh, last question here on the tight ends. Does this group basically look the same heading into next season? It seems like this is a group that will be mostly untouched. Um, I mean, I suppose if, They've got a pick and a guy they like late in the draft. Maybe they do that, but I, I don't know. I, I just don't see much happening here at this position. You know, the only, as, as Scott mentioned earlier, uh, if David Njoku wants to be here and, and really can sort of reconcile that and, and decide that he's fine with his role, fine with being the number two and fine with having the, you know, similar production to what he had this year, maybe a little bit more than that. Uh, then, then I think, they'll move forward with this tight end core pretty much intact. The only reason that doesn't happen is if David and his agent sit down with the Browns and say, this isn't going to work for me. I don't want to be in a place where I'm having 19 catches. I'm a number one tight end and I really want to be somewhere else. Now we saw him in tears on the field after the game. So we know he put his heart and soul into this and he was a good teammate he was, uh, he was good in the building and the coaches did end up liking him, but it's just go going to come down to whether or not he sort of marches in there and says, you really have to get me out of here. I do not want to be here. And it doesn't mean that Andrew would do that. He didn't do it this year, but how long can you sustain that? How long can you keep that going? I think in the end, he'll ultimately end up being here, but there will be that discussion. Yeah, I, I agree. Unless he pushes for it, I think this is the group you're going to see. And even Carlson, he's uh, one of those exclusive rights free agents, so he's 
pretty much guaranteed to come back, I would guess. Um, yeah, you're going to see the same group. All right, so there we go. Our running back and tight end review, we're going to take a break. And when we come back on the other side, we will talk about the rest of the skill position, guys, the wide receivers. I'm back on the Orange and Brown Talk podcast, Dan Lobby, Mary Kay Cabot, and now joining us, Ellis Williams, to talk wide receivers. Uh, let's get right to it. The big question, it's an obvious one. It's Odell Beckham Jr. Is he a Cleveland Brown next season? Oh, it's such a great question, Dan. <laughs> it's such a great question. And I think it's one that the Browns haven't answered for themselves yet. Um, and it, it's a tough one. It is a very tough one. And, and I, if, if, you're, if you're putting my feet to the fire right now, are you? Sure, why not? If you're asking, <laughs> yeah, we are. <laughs> and then I'm going to say no. I mean, if I have to pick yes or no, I'm, I'm going to say no. And the reason why I'm going to say no is because of the 15.25 or whatever it is, million dollar contract that he has next year. Do they like Odell Beckham Jr.? Yes. They like Odell a lot. Baker likes Odell. And as we can see over this past week or so, Odell really came to really like the Browns. He loves Kevin Stefanski. Those two guys have grown close. And so if it works out that he is end up is going to be here, I think everybody will be fine and they'll make it work. I think that if Odell had been here healthy, when the lights came on for Baker, they would have come on for Odell as well. I think those guys would have been fine together. I think Odell would have flourished in this system and in this scheme, and Baker wouldn't have had any trouble finding him. I also think they would not have made the playoffs without Odell Beckham Jr. because he had three touchdowns against the Dallas Cowboys and basically won that game by himself. If they don't win that game, they are not in the playoffs. So he was pivotal to this season, even though he missed most of it. Uh, so from a, from a talent standpoint, off the charts, of course. Can the Browns use him? And would he fare very well here? Yes. But with everything that they have to do in terms of extending guys and paying guys and with a cap that might end up hitting a floor, a collectively bargained floor, of potentially $175 million in 2021, which is almost $25 million less than it is this year. If that happens, you know, you've got to cut corners somewhere. And, uh, and I just think that they're going to look long, long, long and hard at whether or not they can afford to keep Odell Beckham Jr. When, when they proved that their offense actually can function pretty well without him yeah we talked all week about the luxuries that browns may have to cut ties with sheldon richardson was one of them we mentioned this week and odell might be another guy when when your two receivers are in the top four of your paid roster that's going to become an issue especially when the numbers don't put them as you know top 10 receivers in this league just from a number standpoint Selfishly, I hope Odell's back. There's nothing like watching an athlete like that in person open up his stride on a deep post, and they don't even have to throw the ball to him. I just, you know, being there at first energy, watching him run and open up like that. The Dallas game, the reverse Mary Kay. I'm so glad you mentioned it. It's just breathtaking ability of Odell Beckham Jr. that I don't think is replaceable. I know we're going to spend this whole offseason talking about how Donovan Peoples-Jones can be the heir apparent to Odell or step up in his absence it's, it's not going to happen. They are simply just different athletes. DPJ, I think, is going to be a good receiver in this league, but you don't replace a star receiver with rookie talent unless you're the Minnesota Vikings. <laughs> they traded Stephon Diggs, who finished this year at number one in receiving yards, and then the rookie, Jester Jefferson, out of LSU, finished third. That doesn't happen in this league, and I don't expect them to spend a first-round pick on a wide receiver this year in the draft, and that's where this becomes problematic if Odell Beckham Jr. is not back. Because now the blueprint's out on how to combat the Browns' offense. You get physical with them. You get physical. You get in the face of these receivers. The Ravens were the first ones to do it. Jimmy Smith got hurt, and it changed the entire game plan on the, in the second half of that Monday night game. But Kansas City was healthy in their secondary from start to finish, and it showed they got up in Richard's face. They got in Jarvis's face, even putting Jarvis on the, on the grass at some points just with physical press coverage. And that's going to keep happening. And Odell's the only guy on this roster that is a, a difference maker in repeated man coverage. And without him, I don't know how the Browns replace it. You know, I would have to say though, 
he didn't even fare well in that kind of press man, get up in your face, get bullied coverage against the Ravens over the years. Uh, so even though he does so many things well, I don't know that he would have fared all that well necessarily against the Chiefs. He struggled with that kind of coverage himself. Yep. No, I, I, I agree with that. It From an athlete, athletic standpoint, I'm just saying that the, on the roster, the Browns are the – or excuse me, Odell is the only guy on the Browns roster that can do that. Like, I would even – I said this on Gotta Watch the Tape. I think they miss JoJo Natson versus the Chiefs. You know, and those are very different receivers in Odell Beckham Jr. and, and JoJo Natson. But just from a, a quick twitch standpoint, those are the two guys on the roster that are capable of that, and they didn't have either on Sunday. So, so one of the things – that I think is worth pointing out though, is, is when we look at the final four in the NFL right now, every single one of those teams has a dynamic receiver, right? You've got in green Bay, you've got Devonte Adams, Tampa, you've got Mike Evans. And I know Mike Evans didn't have like the typical Mike Evans year this year, getting used to Tom Brady, but he's still Mike Evans still went over a thousand yards. Um, you've got, we've saw, we saw what Stefan Diggs did uh, for Josh, for Josh Allen in Buffalo. And then with Mahomes, I know we talk a lot about the Mahomes-Kelsey thing and, and all of that, but, I mean, we all got to see it in person. We see it every single week, what Tyreek Hill means to that Chiefs. So there's a reason the Chiefs have put up with everything Tyreek Hill brings to the table, and it's because his skill set and what he can do, he can get you that fourth and one because you, you just can't defend him when he's in motion coming out of the backfield. He's, he's too fast and he's too reliable. We see that catch that Kevin Stefanski challenged that they got upheld, that spectacular catch. The one against Denver that Re, Andy Reid should have challenged but didn't. So having that, it's almost like the dynamic receiver is having a comeback this year a little bit because it used to be, well, do you need that guy? Because you, you look at teams like the Patriots who would oftentimes win without maybe that big-time wide receiver outside of the Randy Moss years. Um, you know, I, I, it's almost – you look – Minnesota, you mentioned it, Alice. They went out and they spent the number 22 overall pick to replace Stefan Diggs. So I understand the argument to get rid of Odell Beckham Jr. or to let Odell Beckham Jr. walk. He's coming off an ACL. He's making $15 million. But I do think you need a plan B. And that plan B could be the number 26 overall pick. I don't know if that's the wisest way to go, but I do think you need a plan B because you do need a dynamic wide receiver, I think right now. And I think Baker Mayfield could use a dynamic wide receiver like that too. You know, when you look at the, the salary structure and you look at the amount of money that Jarvis is due next year and that Odell is, is due next year, you would have almost $30 million yeah. tied up in those two receivers. And that is a absolute ton of money in a year when, once again, as we mentioned, the cap might go down to 175 and you got a bunch of guys to pay. Now Jarvis, who is due, I think 14, yeah, $14.8 million next year. Odell is 15.2. Um, Jarvis would only have $3 million in dead cap money next year if you, for some reason, decide to go in another direction and part ways with him. Uh, so that is significant. Because, you know, you, you could absorb that and you can live with that in the event that doesn't work out for you. Um, in, in terms of Odell, uh, as we know, of his $15.25 million, $12.791 million of that is already guaranteed for next year for injury. Okay. They're on the books for that. So if they are going to decide to part ways with Odell and move in another direction, then they're going to have to trade him. Can they trade him? Can you trade a guy that is coming off of a, of a torn ACL and that's going to make 15? I think so. I think you can trade Odell Beckham Jr. for all the reasons that we're talking about. There, there will be teams that look at him and say, we are that guy away from going to the Super Bowl. Okay. I think there are teams that will say that. Whereas the Browns, I agree with you, both of you guys on this, that they need that dynamic receiver. But you can probably find one like the Vikings did maybe at number 26, maybe you move up uh, in that draft and you find one that you like in the middle of the round or you trade for, for one or you find one in free agency. But I do think that you need that guy and this could possibly be the year that you move on from Jarvis and Odell. This could be the off season that you decide to do that where you go in another direction. Now, as far as, as Donovan Peoples-Jones is concerned, I'm incredibly impressed with him. 
-hmm. unbelievably incredibly impressed with him. And I feel like he can be one of your starting receivers next year. And I think that you can get him to the next level and, and have him replace either Jarvis or Odell next year, and then add another really good dynamic receiver. And I would resign Richard and then add a few other pieces in there. You know, you've still got Kaderil and some other guys, but I, I could see, I could see it going that way for economic reasons. And then you're taking a chunk of huge money off the table and you're, you're being able to allocate those resources in other places and you're still getting the job done. They've got three number two receivers right now. Mary Kay, I completely agree with you. I was so impressed with people's Jones. I think he's going to make huge strides in the off season and have a great sophomore campaign. But like Dan said, there needs to be a plan B in replacing that dynamic guy. If you do decide to move on from Odell and, and same for Jarvis, I really appreciate you breaking down the Jarvis stuff there because we're talking much like, I feel like me and Dan are on the side of like on field stuff and just how the mechanics work on the, on the roster. And you're bringing up the financial part of this, which is so important, of course. And there, it's a great point. They could move on and it would make sense now locker room. And I don't think you make decisions based on fan reaction, but you get what I'm, where I'm going with this. You know, Jarvis has obviously got a huge clout within this team in this, in this city and with the Browns. But I go back to what Dan said, you got to have a plan B because you guys can speak to what it was like before Odell got here, what it's like trying to find that number one receiver, it, you know, just off the top of my head, guys like Terrell Pryor, you know, splashing and then never really materializing into a number one when he takes some money and goes to Washington. They're tough to find and they're few and far between, you know, you can spend that 26 pick or move up, uh, but it, you're not guaranteed Justin Jefferson. Jalen Rager went before Justin Jefferson and the Eagles took him and we've seen how that's played out so far. So there's just no guarantees. And with Odell on the roster, you already have that guaranteed number one guy. So a little more on Jarvis Landry. Um, obviously, we, we, Mary Kay, you mentioned the money. We know what he does on the field. Certainly the, the end of the season leaves a bad taste in your mouth. Seven catches, 20 yards, uh, had a drop. The, the interception was targeted to him. Um, it, you know, I, I don't know what he was supposed to do on that play. Um, he also had a drop that probably should have been intercepted. It was not a good way for Jarvis Landry to end the season. Uh, that said, I've been very pro Jarvis on this podcast, uh, going, going back a little ways. I still think he's really important. I, I think I'd like to go another year with Jarvis Landry, especially if, if you're really still working to kind of help Baker out and help get him to that extension, whether they do it whenever they do that. Um, I think Jarvis is really important. I think the guy for the most part, catches almost everything that comes his way. I think there were a lot of throws Baker made this year that if it were another receiver, they wouldn't have caught it. Um, I think he's, you know, there's a little bit of like, you know, we always talk about the Baker Richard connection, but I always thought that the Baker Jarvis connection was stronger. Like Jarvis is the guy, you know, Richard makes plays and gets open and, you know, Baker knows where he's going to be and there is a connection there, but the connection with Jarvis is just different. I mean, Baker thinks he can stick a ball anywhere and Jarvis will go catch it. So to me, I, I think there's a lot of reasons and I understand there are limitations with Jarvis and, and Andrew Barry said he wants to add speed everywhere and that Jarvis is not fast, but I still think he's important to what this team does. And I think he's important to what this offense tries to do. And I think he's really important to Baker Mayfield still. Yeah. I mean, I agree with you on all of that. And, and $14.8 million, although it's a lot of money, it's, I mean, that's the going rate for a receiver of Jarvis's caliber. I mean, that that's what you pay a guy like that. And he is, he has some of the best hands that I've ever seen in, in terms of covering receivers and covering the NFL all of these years. He has some of, I mean, you look and there's a, there's somebody draped all over him and somehow, some way he comes up with the contested catch almost every single time. He is phenomenal. He works at it. That is by design. Uh, I think he actually, if he puts together three or four more really good seasons, uh, he could get himself into the conversation for, for Hall of Fame. However, a game, you know, you got to play, you got to come up big in the playoffs. You have to yeah. come up big in the playoffs. When we sit in that Hall of Fame room, that's one of the things that, that, that comes up. How did you 
perform in the biggest game of your career. So he's going to have to get that figured out and turned around. And as you mentioned, Ellis, that the, they've, they've got to, they have to solve, you know, getting, getting bullied by the, the Ravens corners and by that really, you know, that tough physical man, man to man press corner, get in your face situation. Cause it did not go well on Sunday. And you know, that that's, you need more from, you need more from Jarvis in that game. You just, I mean, he was off. He was just off in that game. And I mean, it, he wasn't just off by himself. They made him be off, but, um, but I can, you can make a strong, strong case for, for keeping him and paying him $15 million next year. And with the fact that he only has $3 million in dead cap, you can also see a world in which they give that some strong and serious consideration. Real, real quick, a, a one oh, sorry, I was real quick, a 107.1 rating this year when uh, Jarvis was targeted. Um, yeah. That's that was third on the team behind Higgins and, and Kareem Hunt. So go ahead, Ellis. Okay, that's interesting. Yeah, um, it's going to be interesting to see how this team grows and changes and develops as we get into year two and year three of Andrew Barry's tenure as the Browns GM. I I really appreciate Mary Kay laying out the the foundation for a. Uh, a life without Jarvis and Odell because that will become reality sooner than I think most Brown fans like to think. However, I, I, I feel like bringing Jarvis back for at least one more year makes the most sense for two reasons. And it goes into thing. A lot of what I said about him being uh, such a life's blood of this team and this organization, but also the slot receiver is just so important in a Kevin Stefanski offense and to Baker Mayfield, a guy who really predicates his throws into strength and throwing in the middle of the field. And Jarvis is one of the best in football at that position, you know, and Kevin Stefanski had Adam Thielen in Minnesota. I think Thielen is a bit more, more of a sprinter, more, more probably twitch than Jarvis right now in their respective careers, but really similar players at the end of the day. And Thielen continued to make plays this year, you know, even without Kevin Stefanski with that offense staying the same for the most part with Gary Kubiak. And that isn't going to change with uh, Kevin Stefanski's offense, despite the, the different modifications he may make, it's not going to change the importance of the slot receiver. So rather than trying to find a, a, an explosive guy on the outside and a slot receiver in the same offseason, there's going to, there's going to, they're going to formulate a plan to navigate that more smoothly than, addressing both at the same time. And right now you've got a, a bona fide, you know, probably top five slot receiver in football. I don't see why you, you get rid of him. If you're um, also trying to figure out other spots at receiver at the same time. Yeah. You know, Landry might not be like the perfect fit in the offense. Right. But they, they definitely found ways to use him and, and found ways to kind of make him a problem out there. And and I would imagine that they, they wouldn't mind having that sort of weapon again for, you know, at some point they are going to have to move on, right? He's got two years left on that deal. So at, at some point they are going to have to move on. I, I don't know if this is the off season to do it, but it's something they have to consider. And, and this offense is going to consider everything. Now, another guy we got to talk about Richard Higgins um, basically saved his career this season in a yeah. lot of ways. You know, he was still a free agent after the draft. The Browns brought him back after the draft. He was not slotted to be the number three receiver at a training camp. That was Kaderil Hodge's job. He was inactive. He played garbage time against Baltimore in week one. Uh, didn't play a whole lot. He played five snaps against Cincinnati in week two. And then he was inactive until the Indianapolis game. So, you know, you can sit here and say, well, man, this coaching staff really figured out Rashard Higgins and, and they really loved this guy, but it took a few weeks for them to really start to love Rashard Higgins and, and kind of figure him out. So uh, look, I, I think for Rashard Higgins, he deserves a ton of credit because he stuck with it. And when his number finally got called in week five, he showed up and he became one of the most reliable receivers on this football team. And again, it ends with a bad taste because he reached that ball out for the goal line in Kansas city, but a really nice year from Higgins. And, and I think this is a guy you almost have to bring back. Yeah. I, um, I think they'll bring him back. I mean, he, he's one of those guys where when you, uh, when you match up the economics against the ability and what he's going to bring to the table uh, it, it's, it's going to make financial sense for them to bring him back. Uh, I think he's going to want to be here. This is where he wants to be. He wants to be with Baker. He knows he's valued here. And he got himself in the good graces of this coaching staff. As you mentioned, it took a little while. 
they they didn't they didn't know what they had they didn't uh, they didn't know their personnel well enough to know that there's kind of something going on between Baker and Richard. So once they figured it out, they capitalized on it. And I think that, uh, I think they were very, very, very happy with everything, of course, except that play, that unfortunate play at the end where he violated their rule, uh, of stretching that over the goal line there. And, uh, but you know what, I think that I don't think they're going to hold that against him is what I'm trying to say. I don't think they will hold that against him. I think they'll re-sign him. He's inexpensive and, and he will be a piece. He'll, he'll be in that receiver room next year. Yeah. Like most role players in this league, Rashard Higgins is not situation proof and his best situation is in Cleveland catching passes from Baker Mayfield, Andrew Barry, Kevin Stefanski both really stress the importance of banked reps Mary Kay, you were all over it even last year about just how Baker not being able to practice, literally just practice with Odell Beckham Jr. was really the root of their disconnect. And we saw it early in this season as well. That's not the same for Richard Higgins. And it's and same with Jarvis Landry, you know, Jarvis being there a year earlier. Those bank reps really matter. And that's what Richard has with Baker. I'm going to use an analogy that maybe only like three listeners of this podcast will understand because it has to do with the Minnesota Timberwolves. But the Minnesota Timberwolves have a guard – uh, named Ricky Rubio. They drafted him instead of Stephen Curry. We don't need to get into that, of course. Point is, he had a good run with the Wolves. He left for a couple years, was the Suns, you know, whatever. You don't really hear from him. And now he's back in Minnesota, and the Wolves suck. <laughs> but he's, he is where he's supposed to be is the point. The city, the fan base were so happy to have him back. He was so happy to be back. It was, it was a marriage that should have never ended. It's just sometimes you have an athlete that is so about the city and ingrained with a team, and they just are supposed to stay there. And that's what it feels like with, with Richard Higgins. Uh, I'll use an, another basketball analogy that listeners will understand. It's kind of like J.R. Smith and LeBron James. Like, J.R. Smith's not going to do anything anywhere else, but when he's playing with LeBron, it works out. And I think this, this Higgins-Baker marriage uh, needs to keep going, and it would be smart for Higgins to, to stay in his vicinity. Mm-hmm. Richard, over the last four games of the regular season, um, when, when the offense kind of started to open up, going back to the Tennessee game, uh, 18 catches, 294 yards, two touchdowns. Um, th- those numbers project. Now, obviously, this wouldn't happen over 16 games, but just to put it in perspective, those numbers project to 72 catches for 1,100 yards. So he was, he was producing over that last month of the season. Really glad you said that, Dan, giving him a 16-game sample size or average there. Scott Pascoe pointed this out on Gotta Watch the Tape. I think it's important to mention right now. And I wish I knew someone at Football Outsiders, excuse me, Football Outsiders, so I could give them a call about their DVOA stat. But Higgins is the third-ranked receiver, according to DVOA, by position. (laughs) And my jaw hit the floor there. Like, he is a professional through and through. I think he's a really, really good receiver. But to be number three in DVOA, a stat I'd really lean on, uh, was just really surprising to see. So I'd love to ask, like, is that just kind of strange? Or, or, or is this guy like a hidden gem and he could take a leap next year? It, it's something to watch. Yeah, yeah. I'm, looking at, I'm looking at it right now. Third in DVOA. Wow. That's crazy? That's pretty incredible. But yeah. uh, and, and you know what? And I, I think that, uh, again, he scored so many brownie points with the coaching staff when he kept – uh, his mouth shut and didn't complain when he was inactive. Okay. He was inactive. Now that wouldn't have happened last year. He was upset last year. He said things, he got on the wrong side of Freddie kitchen. He was in the doghouse. He knew he almost lost his career and never came back to the Cleveland Browns. So when he came back this time, he came back with gratitude and he was going to do whatever it took. He was going to, he would have washed towels if they wanted him to, because he knew that he almost didn't come back here. So, uh, they like him. Uh, Baker likes him. He's good for Baker. And he, he's one of those guys that and you mentioned Terrell Pryor earlier. Terrell, Terrell Pryor had a thousand yards here one season. Okay. Because he was in the right situation and this was the only place that was going to happen. And I, that, that does seem to me sort of the way it is with Richard. Now Richard has established himself enough. I mean, if he's the number three in DVOA, perhaps he could go somewhere else and be successful as well. But yep. I, think, I think he understands that Baker is his meal ticket. And, 100%. And I think that those guys will continue on together. Can I, can I defend Richard here for a minute, too, on, on that fumble? And I'm not, this isn't, doesn't even have anything to do with the helmet-to-helmet. 
if that hit happens a second later, it goes from being this massive, oh, you broke, you broke the team rule to that is an, icon- an iconic Browns play, like a potentially iconic Browns play, him diving at the pylon and, and getting that ball just inside the pylon and scoring what, what would have been an, an enormous touchdown. So I'll defend yeah, he- Richard a little bit. I think it's hard for some guys to, when you're in that moment, it's really hard to not reach that ball out. And the reality is the odds of that play happening are so low. Dan, I completely agree. Yeah, no, I completely agree. And I'm glad you're, you're back in a shot up here because it is, it would have been an iconic moment, iconic play, a game changing play right before half there. If he pulls that off. And I said this on the post game pod, I know Kevin Stefanski says that they have that rule to not extend the ball, but I know Kareem Hunt has done it at least once. So they all need to go back and re re uh, highlight that rule if it truly is. And you know what? I think they, I think they should look at that rule in, in the off season. Everybody complained about it when that happened during the game, all Twitter was all a buzz about how everybody hates that rule. Uh, maybe it's something that needs to be revisited. Yeah, every time it happens, it's just like all anybody talks about is how stupid of a rule it is, and then it never gets never gets fixed. Maybe it being in the spotlight, right now in a playoff game, will will change that a little bit. Um, but they also need to. I don't want to turn this into the helmet to helmet thing. They also need like why do we have replay if you can't review okay, so- that? Right. I mean, we spend so much time with these refs walking to these monitors, watching replays we've we've already seen a million times and know what the outcome is, and like. You, you can't look at that. You can't look at a guy getting hit in the helmet and review that. Yeah, Dan, th- that's actually the point here because Mary Kay, I agree the, that the rule is probably going to get looked at and there's always this talk about should they change it? Should they not? I'm actually pro the rule. I'm for the rule. I think that it, there's, I, yeah, there, you know, there's so much that is in favor of the offense that helps them, you know, generate points and, and, and move the ball downfield that it's sort of the last line of defense for a defense. And I think it's a fair penalty if you're, if you're reckless with the football in that way, I know I'm in the minority there and we don't need to get into it, but Dan, I think your point about the reviewing helmet to helmet contact is the difference maker here. The rule is, it remains because it would have been an issue because of the helmet to helmet hit. And that should be reviewable. I completely agree. And you know what? For, I, I've dug into that a little bit as this week has gone along and what has, and I haven't really gotten a chance to write too much about this yet, but what's come back to me is that most people think that that was like a bang, bang play and it wasn't like an intentional thing and that it shouldn't have been a penalty. That's, that's basically what, what I'm getting. Yeah. Well, no, nobody was calling for it in real time. Right. It was only when you looked at it now, Let's spend a little more time. We've talked about this guy a, a little bit already, but let's spend a little more time on Donovan Peoples-Jones because I mentioned the um, rating when the ball is thrown to someone. And when you take off the filter of minimum targets, 20% of, uh, of 162 on PFF, the highest rated guy at 145.8 is Donovan Peoples-Jones when he was targeted this year. Of course, we all remember the catch he made against Cincinnati. And he did become a guy as far as a downfield passer. He's a guy that became really reliable. And I think probably the most impressive thing was in the Tennessee game, he has the huge drop, would have been a touchdown. The Browns settle for a field goal. And then not much later in that game, he comes back and makes that deep catch that kind of blew the game open a little bit. Um, You know, I I was impressed with people's Jones this year. I, I don't know exactly what his ceiling is, but even if this is it, just a guy that can get down the field and make some catches down the field, I think you got a pretty good player in the sixth round. You know, he exceeded he he far exceeded my expectations this year. I every time I looked out and and saw him uh, making a difficult catch. How many targets did he have this year, Dan? Do you have do you have that? Um, let's see here. I'm on Pro Football Focus. They've got Pro Football Focus has 20 targets for him. I mean, he he made difficult contested catches he stayed ready he stayed ready on scramble drills I mean you've got to really be ready when Baker Mayfield is running the boots and the keepers and all that kind of stuff because you don't know when that ball is coming and I thought he did a phenomenal job of of staying with the play and except for that one that you're talking about in Tennessee for the most part I mean they probably only have him for one drop I would that, that was his only drop of the season right he had one drop and I just, he far exceeded my expectations to the point where I think there's so much to build on 
There's so much to build on. I think he was extremely well coached by Chad O'Shea. Okay. I think Chad O'Shea deserves some credit for helping uh, Donovan Peoples-Jones get up to speed and perform the way that he did. And in clutch moments, he comes up with the big play in clutch moments. And I, I can't say enough of, about how I feel about him. And I, I think he's poised from what I saw this year as a rookie to go on to have a big time successful career. Mary Kay, I was most impressed with his preparation. You know, when they called on him this year, it was when he was not expecting it. When, you know, Cordero Hodge, the, the Cowboys game, when randomly he has a hamstring. All right, DPJ, you're up. Odell, unfortunately, tears his ACL early in that Bengals game. And then he goes and catches the game-winning touchdown. You know, those are moments where, as a rookie, you aren't expecting to play. You are you could be timid. You could be not ready for the moment. And he just stepped up and was a professional about it in his first year. So I completely agree. Shout out to Chad O'Shea. He deserves a ton of credit for getting a young guy like that ready. And in terms of just the type of receiver he is in a physical mold, he is the guy who has potential to beat that physical man coverage. You know, Rashard Higgins is a, is a big receiver himself, but he doesn't have the speed, the quickness of DPJ. And the really the only explosive play the Browns had on the outside versus the Chiefs was that vertical to Peoples-Jones in the first half. It was uh, much more of a great throw rather than a, a, an amazing play by Peoples-Jones. But still, he won the rep. He got on top of the corner and was able to get depth downfield. And I think it was about a 25-yard completion. Baker put it right on the money. And, so, go ahead, Mary Kay. No, I was just going to say, and if, if they do decide to move on, and I know this is a big, bold statement, if they do decide to move on from Odell, I think that Donovan Peoples-Jones is one of the reasons. Now, not that he is going to be or can completely replace Odell, but the development and the emergence of Donovan Peoples-Jones is one of the reasons that you can look at and say, if we have to move on, here's one of the reasons why we can get away with doing this. Completely agree. right. Like you're you're not saying that he's going to be Odell Beckham Jr. No, but he brings you something that you would be losing in Odell Beckham Jr. Right. If that if that makes sense. Yep. Um. Yeah. I mean, look, this is a guy that's six foot two, uh, two hundred twelve pounds, jumped forty four and a half at the combine. Uh. You know, he looks faster, at least running right here. He didn't look faster turning punts and kicks, but he looks faster as a receiver than really that four four eight time at the at the combine would tell you so you know look there's the athleticism there there's the size there maybe he's a guy that even can carry a little more weight and and get a little bit bigger so that's this is not a big receiving core for them I mean Kaderil Hodge is like 6'2 205 and he's kind of one of the bigger guys in this group so and he doesn't in a weird way Hodge doesn't really look 6'2 205 um you know, Peoples right. Jones looks like a guy who's, who's a bigger receiver and then he's got that athleticism to go with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One thing real quick on that. Um, completely accurate, Dan. It'll be interesting to see how Kevin Stefanski developed his route tree for these receivers. Uh, you know, the Browns didn't really run a whole lot of complex routes, option stuff, double move. I mean, the double move is, was available, but just in terms of just winning versus one-on-one man coverage, because they didn't see it a lot. It was a lot of zone. And with bootlegs, it tends to be a lot more deep posts and overs and whatnot. So people's Jones leap will come in his route running. And we just haven't seen it enough yet. If he's capable of that. And he's got a whole off season to keep working at it. Um, okay. Uh, I don't think we we're going to spend a ton of time on the other guys. There's, there's Kaderil Hodge, there's Marvin Hall. Uh, there's, um, is it Alexander Hollins that they signed away from Minnesota? Th- those guys are going to kind of be battling it out. I think um, over the spring and in camp for some of those extra receiver spots. And of course, if the Browns do move on from a, a Landry or a Beckham or both, there's going to be more opportunities for those guys um, as well. Last question here on the receivers. We kind of kicked it around a little bit. Um, would you take a receiver at 26 if it's the right guy? If not at 26, would you take one in the first two days? I would take one at 26. I wouldn't hesitate. I would absolutely do that. And not only would I do that, uh, if there was one that I liked at, 15, I would trade up to get him because as you guys mentioned, if you end up with a Josh Allen, Stefan Diggs type of situation, if you end up with a Patrick and Tyreek type of thing, DeAndre Hopkins type of, if you can find a guy like that and, and they're hard to even find at 15, 
But if you can get a guy like that in the draft and only have to pay him the amount of money that you would have to pay that guy for the next four years, I'm doing that all day long. Yeah, I, I completely agree, Mary Kay. I'm all for the trade up. Get aggressive. Go get your guy. I think they need to address edge rusher as well. And those type of premium athletes are harder to find in later rounds. So I, I would lean towards using that first round pick on a on an edge rusher. But you're right. A, a game breaking receiver. Again, just look what Justin Jefferson. Just YouTube Justin Jefferson Browns fans and what he did for the Vikings this year. A bona fide star. He's next. And finding that guy completely unlocks and changes your offense. Um, draft prep starts for me on Monday. I'll speak for myself because I know Mary Kay does not get tired, but hit a little wall this week with, the, with the, how the season ended, you know, so we're going to get into, into draft stuff on Monday. It's going to be fun and start to look at uh, possibly the Browns finding that first round receiver. Cause I'm, I'm sure like every for last year was a loaded class, but just in general, these receivers are coming into the league, like wildfire. It's about finding the right guy though. Yeah, I think, um, I think it was Dane Brugler's first mock draft had the Browns taking a linebacker at 26 and, you know, Dane Brugler is excellent at what he does. I just don't know if I, if I see the Browns taking a linebacker with their first round pick, I think it would be a premium. I think it would be edge rusher corner wide receiver. You know, they don't need to address the offensive line. So it, it wouldn't be that, but I, I think it would be hard for me to see them not taking a premium position there unless that linebacker sitting there is like, going to be Ray Lewis or, or whatever, you know, I, I don't know if I, if I see that happening. Yeah. And I don't know that, you know, we should just assume that they're going defense uh, just because yeah, that's I'm, what, I'm with you. Right. Just because we think that's what they're going to do, especially with this conversation that, that we're having right now, I could 100% see them uh, going out and finding an amazing receiver in the first round and saving themselves a boatload of money. We're recording this on January 22nd. And for the first time on this podcast this year, I've said mock draft. That's probably, that's probably a record for a Browns podcast. We're probably talking about that way back in like the new year. So uh, here we go. It's uh, it's going to be officially draft season here coming up. All right. So there you have it running backs and tight ends off the top wide receivers here in the second half. Uh, Scott was with us earlier. Ellis with us here. Uh, make sure you're subscribed to the orange and Brown talk podcast, wherever you get your feeds. There was a big two part. Got to watch the tape. Uh, that went up this week we had every I should say last week when you're listening to this we've had every position review except for quarterbacks to this point so make sure you you hit up that feed and also make sure you check out football insider at cleveland.com slash brown so for all involved Mary Kay Ellis and Scott I'm Dan thanks for listening